0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of a changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is September the 11th, 2020. This is episode 2729 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday, so it's time for an expert council Q&A show. Before I tell you about the uh, segments we have coming from the council, I do want to acknowledge it is September 11th. Um, I was in and out on how much to say about September 11th today because, of course, the TV will talk about September 11th all day long. All the way until it gets dark out and you go to bed. If you put on a news channel, they'll be talking about 90% of the time September 11th. And I've always tried to be the guy that talks about, that talks about things that not everybody else is talking about. Right? That's, that's part of my differentiation. But I will say that this subject is going to kind of tie into the song of the day today in a weird way and with the songs I've got planned for all next week. The song of the day today has nothing to do with nine eleven. Nothing to do with nine eleven. It's a song that if you're on social media and you follow me on like Parlor or something like that, you probably already know what it is. Because I put out the song of the day I put out like a couple lines from the song of the day. Uh, usually try not to include the title if there's the title in, in words. I try to pick some obscure lines if I can. And as a clue as to what it's gonna be. But I'll go ahead and tell you what today's show is, uh, the song of the day is is Dust on the Bottle, David Lee Murphy. Not the greatest piece of music of all time, but it makes me think of something from my childhood. It actually anchors me to a point in time and to a person in time. And that's what I'm gonna talk about for Song of the Day all through next week as well. Songs that maybe don't even have an exact connection the way this one does. Because there's 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 a there's a character in in my past, and some of you have probably heard me talk about it before, that is Creole Wilson from Dust on a Bottle. But what that pulls back to with 911 is if you were alive if you were alive and old enough to have any understanding of what was going on on September 11th 2001 you can you can probably tell the entire story of what you were doing that day and there's probably not a lot of other places in time that you can do that but there's probably no other day, that you and a person that was 3,000 miles away on that same day, that doesn't know you and never has known you, have the same day like that. There's very few of those days in history. Very few of those days in history. There's some good ones and some bad ones. If you were, you know, I wasn't, but if you were around when the, the first moon landing happened, that would be a good one. I think a lot of people, to some degree, nowhere near the degree that, the moon landing in a positive way or nine eleven in a negative way, but probably a lot of people could say that about the recent uh, launch of the Tesla rocket that took two American astronauts to a space station for the first time in a decade from our own place and doing it with a privately built pr- thing. Right? I think a lot of people probably remember that, but nowhere near. Like nine eleven is a bonding of people, and I think that people who are complete believers in the mainstream narrative, people that are complete and total utter conspiracy theorists, and people like myself in the middle that think, I don't I don't believe all the conspiracy theories at all. No way. Um, I don't believe that planes didn't hit the buildings. I had friends that were standing there watching planes hit the buildings. It's kind of hard to believe that they didn't. I question the Pentagon a little more than that, but I'm somewhere in the middle. But I think what binds us all is we all know where we were that day. And we all know how we felt that day, and we all felt the same. So instead of reliving it, I'll just say that however you felt that way, the one good thing from it is that everybody else that was there and, and was paying attention the way that you were knows how you felt that day. It's not very common that we know how someone else really felt. But on that day, to a degree, as much as possible, the, the largest number of people in this country understood the largest other number of people in this country in a very intimate way from hundreds or thousands of miles away. I will tell you that it did have a marked impact on my life, and in many ways, while it wouldn't be for seven more years, the tsp would be born in june of 2008 in in a in a roundabout way this show was born on september 11 2001 in a way because i was on the road traveling and i was in pittsburgh and the first plane hit just as my plane landed then another plane hit and then the pentagon then a plane that went down in shanksville but, of course, nobody said it that way. They said it was Pittsburgh. And up until then, I knew that my wife knew my, my flight number and knew that she could just check and see that I had landed. I tried to call her when I first hit the ground, but everybody went crazy. Cell phone networks weren't they, what they were today. I couldn't get through and I didn't want to take up a line from somebody that needed it. So I let it go. But when that plane went down to Shanksville, I kept calling till I got through. And I said, You got to get to the school, you got to tell the kid I'm okay. Because they're going to tell these kids what happened. And they're going to say Pittsburgh, and that's all he's going to know. And that night, I listened to my wife cry, my son cry. I listened to my son ask me if a war could come here, meaning, could war, war, what he understood of war, on his TV come to our backyard? And in that moment, I was 600 miles away, but I might as well have been 6,000 miles away. There was no way I could get back to them. And I made a decision. I didn't know how, but everything was going to change. A week later, I was at home. I put in the first garden I would put in in a long time. A week later, my son and I took a bunch of leftover bricks from when the house had been built. We built a giant fire pit. We started hanging out with our neighbors on the weekends instead of watching TV. And everything in my life changed just a little bit. And I never went back. And I think what that shows you is no matter what happens, the person has the most control over what comes of it in your life is you. Unlike a lot of my, uh, my friends at the time, they were prior military. I didn't want to run back and join the military. I had a couple friends that I served with that were out like I was. And they went back. By that point, I would figured out what I really wanted to defend. My wife and my son. And their families. And for me, it was a turning point. And right away, right away I knew it would be decades later, and we would still be fighting misguided wars that this was used to justify. I knew that, too. Anyway, we got better stuff to talk about today. Well, I guess my segment's going to be kind of a downer, too. I guess I'm a downer guy today. Anyway, I'm Jack Downer instead of Debbie Downer. Anyway, uh, we'll start off, though. Uh, the concept of truly owning your customer relationships with cold Sauce, and uh, she has a new Kickstarter out that she's running her own Kickstarter for on her own server, without the Kickstarter people that, like, suck. She'll tell you about that and discuss this concept of, if you're going to build something, truly owning the relationship versus having some intermediary actually control the relationship. And I'll have a few thoughts on that as well. John Pugliano has a lightning round of Q&A. Tim Cook discusses opportunities in what you would call dying communities. Dr. Ken Berry on the right time to take supplements. Thoughts on Tesla Powerwalls and backup power in Tennessee. Tennessee is a little different when it comes up to backup power systems, especially distributed systems like the Tesla Powerwall. Tennessee Valley Authority is not really interested in that happening, and they make it hard. So Sean will talk about that. And I'm going to talk about something, kind of my final pass at what's going on with civil unrest for a while. This time it's not a call to get out of the cities, though it's a call to get out of the cities. But I want to talk about something that, if this keeps getting worse, how how false bravado can get in the way of seeing the real dangers. I'm I'm going to talk to you about the soft underbelly of the United States system and what it potentially looks like if we have one of these, uh, you can only call it a civil war. But I hesitate to use civil war because what that means to people is not what civil war actually means in most of the world when it happens. We have a belief in our our minds that a civil war looks like the civil war in the United States, the war of the 1860s. It doesn't. That was, uh, was not a civil war as the word is used around the world. That was two armies with distinct territories, fighting each other and having a clear objective as to what both sides wanted. I'm not saying it's good or bad. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying it's different. Civil war in the world looks like Bosnia. It looks like Nicaragua in the 80s. Civil war is, uh, is awful. And as it progresses, it goes from awful to worse. And I want to talk to you just a little bit about some things that are going on right now that may or may not be related to the riots and the demonstrations. But whether they are or not is irrelevant to the point that they could be. And there's a lot of ways that could be taken up. And I just want people to be ready to deal with situations that we might unfortunately face someday. With that, let's start off with Nicole Sauce on uh, owning your customer relationships instead of letting somebody else do that.
2: Hey everyone, Nicole Sauce here with Living Free in Tennessee, and I wanted to share with y'all some thoughts I have about owning your customer relations. You see, a lot of us use marketing tools like Facebook or YouTube or Etsy or Kickstarter or Twitter and the like to get the word out about our product or our service or our podcast or our video show or lots of different things. Our homeopathic clinics, right? And these are really good tools that you can use to advertise yourself through telling a story. However, if you depend on only those to link with your customers, to interact with your customers, and to keep communication with your customers, what you are doing is ceding control of your customer relation to a third-party platform. And that has risk built in. And this is a risk you need to really understand as you're building your side hustles, as you're building your businesses, because it's a risk that if they pull the plug... You lose all of that. And we've seen a lot lately about deplatforming and censorship and those sorts of things. But as those things have been being discussed, I see people saying, you know, I wish I could get off Facebook or I wish I could stop using Etsy, but they're responsible for 70% of my revenue. Or I do all of my sales through a Facebook group or a Facebook page. And, and that's caused me to worry a little bit. And I thought, well... We can critique people for having their businesses set up that way, or maybe I can share ways to move beyond other platforms. So today I just wanted to share some thoughts about ways that you can take steps if you are currently in a situation where you're dependent on a third party platform to become independent. I think the first step is have your own website. Yep. I know you hear me talking about websites all the time, but literally like if your business is Sally's hair care, then go get SallysHairCare.com. pay somebody to build your website or build your website, but get all of your information there. When somebody says, how do I find you? Don't say find me on Instagram and Facebook say, Hey, you can connect with me there, but go to my website site, SallysHairCare.com." right? That's the first thing. Second, start collecting email addresses and contact information. That means getting that little collection form on your website. But also, if you have a business where you're interacting with people in person, you can have them sign up on paper and add them to an email list on a platform like Constant Contact or MailChimp or AWeber. That's what Jack uses, right? So Start having that direct relationship via email. And that's a little bit of work because that means you need to send an email once a week or once a month or once a day, depending on what works best for your business. Number three, customers who are interacting with you on social media right now and buying from you on social media right now, build incentives for them to buy from you on your website rather than from you on Facebook. And I know you don't want to lose customers because they can't buy from you on Facebook or through Instagram or wherever, but there are ways to build incentives. I was actually talking to somebody about this who was kind of stuck in a farmer's market situation right now where they need to have that in-person sort of interaction to sell a lot of their product. And and I said, well, you know... Why don't you make a premium thing, whatever it is? I'm going to use coffee as an example because I'm a coffee producer. And let's say I have Holler Roast coffee, I have Bolivian Blend, both great coffees, and then we have Jack's Bourbon Cooled Sumatran. You can get those first two at Facebook or you can get those first two at the Farmer's Market, but if you want Jack's Bourbon Cooled, you got to pre-order that on my website and then I'll deliver it to you or you got to order it mail order only. So start thinking about ways to launch premium services, premium product lines that they can only get if they connect with you directly, either through your website, by joining your email list, that sort of thing. I'm bringing this up because there has been a lot of push to go off of some of these platforms that are exercising freedom of speech controls. Basically they're censoring opinions they don't like and If you just jump, having not built the foundation of having your customer base connecting with you directly, that's really going to hurt. But if you start taking steps by having your website built, by finding ways to incentivize that that direct relationship, and by really owning the relationship with your customers, you're going to be much better off. You know why I started thinking of this, guys? It's because... My coffee roaster caught on fire in August, and a lot of you who are my customers now were very understanding with great delays in shipping while I basically rebuilt parts of my roaster that had to be rebuilt. And part of why it caught on fire is that we've been successful and we've been growing, and I'm maxing out what that roaster can do. So it's time for me to buy a new roaster. I thought, you know what? I'll kickstart again. And I will do go to Kickstarter and I will start a campaign and pre-sell coffee and get the new roaster and roast the coffee. And it's a win-win. People get awesome coffee. We have a bigger roaster and better capacity. Kickstarter said no. I put together the campaign. They said no. And I thought, I have just spent like two weeks of my time putting together all the parameters for this. And they are telling me that I have to make fundamental changes to how I communicate about my business in order to use their platform. That's fine. I mean, I was using their platform because they had a functionality and I you pay a percentage to them and that's cool. I'm a web developer though. Screw it. Instead of trying to figure out how to redo my marketing, which I feel my messaging is what it needs to be for this campaign, I'm just going to build my own website. Okay, these are my f- famous last words, guys. I'm just gonna anytime I say that it takes like 6 times as long. But I realized right then that I get zero benefit from the Kickstarter network and I get only a little bit of ben- benefit and functionality. So I built a website, com with built-in functionality that allows to crowdfund, through the pre-sales of coffee, my ability to expand the roaster. And as part of that, I realized, you know, almost everybody who's going to support my campaign knows me already or they hear me on a podcast like this Or they connect with me in another very direct way. I don't need somebody else to own what I'm doing. So we launched it. Anyway, I wanted to share that story and I wanted to encourage you if you are feeling stuck at Etsy or stuck on Facebook or stuck with any platform that you're in, start looking at ways you can open the door to set the foundation for delivering that direct customer relationship because that is what gets you through. And that is the most important part of your business. If you have any questions about marketing, website development, or even some good old home cooking or food preservation, feel free to send them into Jack, TSPC expert in the subject line. I'd love to have more questions. I'm actually out right now. So would love to hear from you. And yes, if you want to support my crowdfunding campaign that has launched for Hollow Roast Coffee, go to kickstartholleroast.com. Make it a great week.
1: So I think the key with uh, any kind of third-party service is that you need to be doing everything you can when you do use a third-party service to move the relationship under your control. Like the most difficult place to do that is selling on Amazon. Facebook, Etsy, etc. is actually pretty easy because you have the relationship. It's just on that platform. So all you got to do is move it to another platform like email, like text. And like most of the business that's done through those platforms, you ship your own items so you know who your customer is. Most of us using Amazon would use it for something like FBA or Fulfilled by Amazon, and it's a great program. You have a product, it's warehoused at Amazon, it gets shipped, you don't touch anything, you make money, all you have to do is market it. In that situation, what I've noticed a lot of good brands doing is is putting inserts into the packaging that really incentivize you, hey, come to our website, register your product, get a free thing. You know, if you do a review on our website, then we will... uh, will give you a free thing, or we'll give you $10 off your next order, even if you buy it on Amazon, something like that. Because they know if you if you come to, let's say, Cave Tools, the, the people that make the pellet smoker I brought you guys yesterday, um, if you go to cavetools.com and you do a review there, you now have given them your name and your email, etc. If you register a product, and it's a little harder, and I'll be honest, I I advise you to do it, if you are the vendor, You include some sort of insert or something like that. If you're at a place where you are blind to your customer, you can't see them on the other side of it. I suggest you do the best you can to get them to do it, but I know that it's limited because I almost never do it. I was like, that's good they did that, and I throw it away. (laughs) I'm just not that guy, right? But anything you do with marketing is a percentages game. And if, let's say, 20% of people will respond to an insert like that, and you get 1,000 orders, that's 200 people that you have direct relationships with versus zero. And there are 200 motivated people that probably really like you that they did it in the first place. Because what you can do with 200 motivated people is pretty impressive. Hey, check this new thing. Why don't you guys tell your friends and family? And they tell two people, and if all those two people tell one people, at least you're up to like 800 now, and that's almost what you had before. So make sure you're doing that. If you're doing business on Etsy or whatever, you really want to try... And, you know, 20 years ago, I probably would have been i would have been a totally opposed to what I'm about to say. I would have called it circumvention. You're circumventing the value add between you and the customer. But a lot of these value adds have started to abuse the people and deplatform people. So I don't feel that way anymore, right? Now, I have to say, Etsy, I've not heard a bad word about, and I don't know that they will deplatform. I don't know. You know, I know eBay's had some issues, but... Basically, eBay says, like, here's a whole bunch of shit you can't sell on eBay, and otherwise, go nuts. And I've not really heard of people being deplatformed from eBay over their political stance or something like that. Facebook, etc. yeah. So if you're selling on Facebook Marketplace, I have two things. Number one, build a customer list. You know, set up a Telegram channel, like the one I did for TSP, and tell people, hey, look, if you get on my Telegram channel and then you text me directly a screenshot i'll give you 5 bucks off your next order next whatever it is but start to build that broadcast channel right and then that way at least when you have something you can text all your people hey i have this now call for more or whatever or something you know go go fill out your, my email form or whatever you know use that platform to put people from that platform to your own whatever your platform is I, I'll give you an example of why this is so important. My uh, my nephew and my niece in law, I have several of those, but this particular one, yeah, she the, the niece in law is a uh, Instagram model, and they have a private website and what have you, and it's not porn or anything, but it's uh it's very sexy, let's put it that way. She's basically a a fitness model, and um, they've had their Instagram shut down a couple times. They've always got it back. But all their money's made through a private website. And it's not like an OnlyFans or something like that, right? It's, it's, it's their website. Well, so they weren't happy about it, but their income was largely unaffected. And that way they have all of their customers and all their past customers, because it's easier to sell to a past customer than it is to a new customer a lot of times. And they had all of that information, and when they you know, they started doing TikTok videos, they were able to use that to seed their TikTok and take off even faster. And if TikTok gets shut down, then they could do it somewhere. You see what I'm saying? So w- no matter what you're doing, you need to be thinking that way in 2020. And it, it makes me think, I did a video quite a while ago. I'll, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But basically, it was on YouTube, and it was like, why well, YouTube producers that want to monetize their channel need to avoid platforms like Patreon? And I think that speaks to a lot of things today. And if you haven't ever watched that video or if you haven't watched it in a long time, go watch it sometime this weekend. And then think about it in the context of what's happened since I put it out. Anyway, next one, John Pagliano with a lightning round.
3: Hey, TSP, I'm going to do a lightning round of questions here. I'm going to try and be fairly brief. If these are one of your questions and you didn't get the specific answer you want, feel free to go to either one of my websites and contact me personally, and I'll try and get you a better answer. I am merging a number of topics and questions together here so that we can get as many of them in as possible. First question comes from somebody in Missouri. They're asking about an inheritance tax, and this would be on money that they potentially would inherit from their in-laws. Okay, a couple things here. A lot of people are worried about, inheritance or estate taxes, they are two different things. Make sure you know the difference. But they really don't apply to most people. I'm going to tell you why here in a second. The federal government and most states do not have an inheritance tax, but they do have an estate tax. However, most states follow the federal government's policy, and the federal government's estate tax doesn't kick in unless the individual's estate has a value of more than $11,580,000. And that's an individual. So if you're talking about a married couple, is they can combine them even if one predeceases the other. So a married couple could leave over $23 million to the heirs without paying any federal estate tax at all. And that also, as I say, applies in most states. So unless your in-laws have an estate of more than $23 million, you probably don't have to worry about anything. Now, I say probably because although you told me what state you lived in, you didn't specify where your in-laws live, and that does make a difference because there are about a dozen states or so which have either an estate tax or an inheritance tax. And, in fact, the great state of Maryland has both. And so even though you live in Missouri, which doesn't, to my knowledge, have an inheritance tax, If your in-laws, for example, lived in Illinois, which is, you know, just across the state line from you, well, Illinois has an estate tax that kicks in at $4 million. And then, of course, that doesn't mean that you have to pay the estate tax because there's ways to plan around that, for example, by using things like trusts and other mechanisms. But if you're in that kind of situation, you should probably be getting the counsel of a professional so you make sure you do it properly. Now, the next question is in regards to should you pay off your mortgage or should you pay off various debts that you have. There are some people that have debts that they're not being charged interest for, you know, maybe a car payment or something like that where you got a zero interest loan. Well, why would you pay that off early other than for the convenience of just getting rid of the debt? I mean, you may want to do that. But the bottom line is if you have $10,000 in cash and you owe $10,000 on your car payment but you're not paying any interest on that car loan, then I'm not sure why you'd want to pay it off early. Now, I'd say use that same logic on other loans that you may have, for example, like on your mortgage. I'm generally somebody that encourages people to have their mortgage paid off. However, I qualify that by saying that, listen, if you have a mortgage and you have an extremely low interest rate on it, chances are you can find some other investment opportunities which over the long run are going to more than cover the cost of that interest rate. Now here's a question from Joe, and Joe says that he's rich. And he asks two questions but doesn't give any details. He says, how do I protect myself from lawsuits? Do I need a trust? And his other question, he says, when should I walk away from work? Well, as far as protecting yourself from lawsuits... Like anything else, Joe, it depends on what state you live in because laws drastically vary from state to state. If someone trips and falls at your front door and they break their leg and they sue you, well, they're really not going to sue you. They're going to sue whoever owns the home. And so if your home is in the trust, having a trust isn't going to protect you from a lawsuit because the trust itself is a legal entity, but it can still be sued. And so really, I think probably the best way to protect you and your wealth is to make sure that you have adequate liability insurance. And as far as the amount of liability coverage that you should be carrying, well, that should correlate to how much wealth you're trying to protect. Now, your other question about when to walk away from work, well, it kind of sounds like you don't like what you do. And in that case, if you're rich, I'd say you should probably quit tomorrow. We work for two reasons. One reason is to generate an income and the other reason is for personal satisfaction. If you have enough money where you don't need the income and you're not getting any personal satisfaction from the job, then walk away from it. What I encourage people to do, and this is especially people that are younger, is don't focus on working in a job that you're going to retire from, but rather build yourself some type of a lifestyle career where you never plan to retire because you enjoy what you do. And then Nick and some other people have asked about, you know, the money within their 401k account. You know, how do you move that to cash? Well, Nick, look at your investment options within the 401k. There isn't going to be something that specifically says cash, but there will be some type of a cash equivalent fund or perhaps a guaranteed value fund. Those are the buzzwords that you're looking for. And if you want to move your money out of the stock market, then those are the type fund names that you want to look for to put your money in until the turbulence or the downtrend in the stock market goes away, and then you can use that to move back into those index funds or whatever type of stock market investment options are within your 401K. Christina is worried about a recession or depression, and she wants to know how that's going to impact government pensions and Social Security. Well, as far as federal pensions and federal Social Security, it's not going to have any impact on it at all. And that's my opinion. I know a lot of people that are peddling gloom and doom are going to tell you that the government's going to go bankrupt and things, but the federal government has the printing press, and they can't go bankrupt. And so they will always print enough money to cover your Social Security or your federal government pension. Now, when it comes to private company pensions, insurance company pensions, or pensions offered by states, that's a whole different ballgame. I think a lot of states and companies and insurance companies are going to be running into a big pension bubble, and I don't think that's necessarily a pending disaster, but in the coming years, there are many unfunded state and insurance company-type programs, and I think the end result of those will be that the federal government will have to come in and bail those pension funds out, and so in that case, you'll continue to receive a payment but you won't receive the full benefits that you may have if you had a really lush pension fund. When the federal government comes in and takes over a pension plan that's in default, this is handled by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and you can look up online exactly what you would qualify for. But generally, they'll only cover a portion of their pension that you were receiving. And to give you a ballpark number on that, I think currently... For someone 65 years old on a single life annuity, they would receive somewhere right around $5,800 a month. That would be the max payment that the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation would pay you, regardless of how high your benefits would have been with the other pension plan that, you know, before it went into default. So even if your pension fund goes into bankruptcy, you are going to have a minimum floor and some protection as to the amount of money that you're going to continue to receive, because that is guaranteed by the federal government. Now that takes us to the general question where people are really worried about depressions and recessions. And for now, I still remain optimistic. Uh, but the bottom line on all this is, is that during a depression, you don't have inflation. You have exactly the opposite of that. You have deflation. That's why it's called a depression or a recession. That means then rather than prices going up, they actually come down. So the stock market crashes real estate prices go down. That crashes. What you want to do is if you're worried about a major recession or the country going into a depression, that doesn't mean you want to build a bunker and load up on MREs. What that means is you want to put yourself in a position where you can continue to earn an income and you can have a lot of your assets being liquid, meaning they're in cash. And then when the market prices come down, you don't want to panic or be fearful. That's when you want to go in and buy real estate and buy stocks and make other types of investments in distressed assets because a depression or a recession doesn't mean the end of the world. It just means a reset to the current business cycle. So if you're concerned about a coming depression, don't worry about it. Start putting things in place now where you're prepared for it so that you can be buying things when they're inexpensive to ensure that you have more wealth going into the next phase of the business cycle. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano of Investible Wealth and the Studying Podcast.
1: All right, good stuff. Next up, uh, we have Tim the Toolman Cook with uh,
4: Opportunities Within Dying Communities. Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Back with another segment for the Expert Council. So this week, I've been thinking a lot about what Jack's been saying, about the need to get out of the cities. And he is 100% right, because honestly, I don't feel like things are going to get better for a whole lot of time. So that being said... I know there's some people who are going to be able to move, some who are going to be able to get out of the cities, but then there's going to be some who find themselves in areas that quickly go from boom to bust and looking around wondering what to do. And let me remind you that there are opportunities in dying communities. So seven years ago, I moved my entire family across the continent to a small town bursting at the seams where you could make $30 an hour with literally zero experience. It was the prototypical oil boom town. Two years almost to the day, the bottom of the worldwide oil price fell fell out of the barrel. People said, don't worry, 18 months and the boom will be back. We've been through this before. But instead of that, months passed, businesses closed, rigs set idle, jobs evaporated, rentals emptied, and families moved away. It went from a job opening in every single business to not a job available in the town. So many people left the town looking for opportunity elsewhere, not seeing the opportunity that was left behind. So what was left? We had empty rentals, houses sitting on the market for years, industrial properties getting into disrepair. Where most people see the lost income and evaporated opportunities, entrepreneurs can look for the opportunities and see them. So look around your area and see what there is. Large companies tend to own the industrial properties that are empty, so you may need insurance and workers' compensation to work for them, but it's worth it. They're willing to pay really, really well to have you remove snow, spray for weeds, mow grass, because it's not worth it for them to come and do the work themselves. If you develop a good rapport with them, they'll even spoon-feed you work. Local municipalities will unfortunately still be enforcing unsightly premises bylaws, and they'll need reliable people or companies to go in and trim trees, remove garbage, cut grass, and more, of course, for a fee. So there's money to be made there. The houses left behind have filled up the market and there are tons sitting empty here. Uh, Insurance companies require regular inspections in order to not cancel their policy. Homeowners want their walkways kept clear to avoid liability. They want their lawns mowed to avoid fines. They want their shrubs trimmed, their gutters cleaned, their windows kept clean so it doesn't hurt their potential to resell the house. Everyone's looking for an advantage while attempting to sell their houses, looking for their biggest bang for their buck. They want a bathroom painted or a shed built, or a porch re-roofed. Nothing that costs a ton, but something that can up the value of the house while they're away trying to sell it. In dying communities, there'll be abandoned houses and foreclosures as well. Uh, This is kind of a sad part of it, but it's the reality. Most foreclosure work is done by big property conglomerates that sub out the work. Contact all of them, get your foot in the door. It'll start slow, but it can work into something very full-time by itself. There also may be opportunities during the downturn as well. Offering moving services for people moving away. If you don't have a truck, you can rent one from Home Depot or U-Haul and do the work for people. Offer garbage hauling services for those same people. They're going to have a lot of refuse left behind as they're moving away and need things cleaned up. Offer cleanup services for landlords. Watch the market, and if you're quick to contact potential renters, you can get good at finding people to rent empty apartments for landlords for a fee. Hopefully it doesn't get as bad as we think it's going to, but remember, some of us have been through it before, and if anyone out there needs advice on how to handle living in a community that has transitioned from boom to bust, or just need advice on getting your business off the ground, feel free to message me on Facebook, YouTube, or email me at therealtimcook at gmail.com. Any questions you want answered for the expert council, send them in to Jack and I'll get them answered for you. And I just want to say, if it weren't for the TSP community, my YouTube channel wouldn't be growing like it has. So thanks, everybody. If you're looking for more business ideas, I just did a two-part video showcasing 10 more services you can offer that cost you nothing to set up that get you money, making money right away. As well, my weekly Tool Time gear review videos this month will have a digital meat thermometer, an LED work light, uh, Jack's famous tire plug kit, and a 20 volt cordless DeWalt chop saw. So stop by allseasonsmain.com to check them out. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week.
1: All right, next up, we have one for Dr. Ken Berry on the right time to take your supplements.
5: Hey, Jack and the TSP crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry coming back to answer another question. This question is from Jeff. The question is, is there an optimal time to take supplements? Jeff understands that high levels of sugar in the gastrointestinal system and in the bloodstream can block nutrients from getting into the cells, and that's absolutely true. Jeff does some daily intermittent fasting, which I hope all of you guys are doing. It's it's wonderful for your health optimization in hundreds of ways. I talk about a lot of this stuff on my YouTube channel. Uh Jeff wants to know, should he take his vitamins near the end of his fast or just before eating because of the blood sugar issue? This is an excellent question, Jeff. I think we should mimic how our ancestors did it tens of thousands of years ago. The only time they got vitamins and minerals, which are what supplements are or are supposed to be, was during their meals, and so when I take supplements, I take them right before I break my fast or during the the fast-breaking meal or directly after that meal. I think that mimics how our gastrointestinal physiology is set up to work, and I think you're going to absorb the highest amount that way. I hope that you're eating a low-carbohydrate-enough diet that you're not spiking your blood sugar and that you're not having high levels of glucose and fructose and galactose in your gastrointestinal system. And so if you're eating low carb, you're not going to be blocking any of the supplements by taking them right before your fast-breaking meal or during that meal. That's what I do, and that's what I recommend. I think that makes the most ancestral sense and the most common sense. I hope this answer helped you understand this uh, topic this is Dr. Berry. I'll talk to you guys next time.
1: So I'll just add my thoughts on this. I agree with the, the reasoning behind what Ken said, and, and I do pretty much exactly what he said except one little tiny difference. I don't tend to take my supplements just before a meal or during a meal. I take it immediately after a meal. I want the food in my stomach when the supplements drop. Especially I take three groups of three. I take a frequency of three times a day of supplements. I take a morning and afternoon and the evening type situation, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner type situation. My two earlier doses, my breakfast and lunch, or I, say, I should say breakfast, dinner, it's probably breakfast, dinner, evening, right? So my my first two include a multivitamin and include some other vitamins. If I take them on an empty stomach, I do not feel good. I do not feel good at all. So by having the food there as a buffer before they hit... It's just more comfortable. So I don't think it really matters if you take it right before, or during, or after from a biochemical standpoint. But it should be around the time you take food. But I, I don't think you should, if, if you have gastric distress or discomfort, and I don't really call it, I don't know what you would call it. I just, I feel like, uh, like something's living in my stomach in a bad way. Like there's movement. Like it's just not, I, I just feel miserable. If I drop a multivitamin on an empty stomach, even if I eat right away thereafter, it. So if you have that problem, don't feel like it has to be before. Like any time around the consumption of food, I think will work well. Um, and if you're on keto, there's a lot of vitamins that are fat soluble, and you need to have some fat, and that's nice because you won't have any problem if you're on keto. If you and so like my evening dose, I take close to bedtime. I don't want to eat at that point. Uh, So what I will do is I'll eat a little bit, uh, like one tablespoon of like a keto ice cream or something because it's got a lot of fat and it's satiating, but it ends up not being a lot of calories. I don't really need to do it at that point because the stuff I take in the evening is not going to give me that stomach stuff going on, but the little bit of fat with it I believe is very beneficial to the absorption of some of the minerals and the nutrients. Anyway, that's just my thoughts. Let's take another one. This next one is from Sean Mills on backup power in the state of Tennessee, which is really good on a lot of things with freedom and liberty, but not power in some ways, thanks to the TVA, which goes back to who? FDR. (laughs) Sean, take it away.
6: Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and today I've got a question from Joey in Tennessee. Uh, So Joey says, question for Sean Mills. Should I consider getting a Tesla Powerwall for a new home, or is there another alternative that is more economical? Details. My wife and I are building a new home in a rural area. Reliable power backup is a concern, and I'm trying to decide between a whole home backup generator and something like a Powerwall. Does it make economical sense to look at something like this, or is a generator system still the best overall option? I'm open to exploring tax credits and such to reduce my cost, but there aren't a lot of state-slash-local credits here in Tennessee that I can seem to find. Thanks, Joey in Tennessee. Uh, Joey, you're correct. TVA, or the Tennessee Valley Authority, does not want folks to have uh, options for power other than TVA itself, uh, so they make it hard in Tennessee to have distributed systems. I'm actually working with a fellow Tennessean right now on navigating those shark infested waters right now in the wake of TVA eliminating their green power provider program at the end of last year. So here's what I would do if I were in your situation, Joey. I would get a propane pig, unless you're in an area that gets natural gas, and then I would use natural gas, uh, and then I would get a portable generator that could run off of propane and could run the house, you know, something around 9,000 watts probably. Um you could also look into a Generlink, which you can find more about at Generlink.com, G E N E R L I N K.com. Um, I think that's a great system if you can get your local power company to uh, agree to let you put it in. Uh, but outside of that, I would I would still run a portable um, generator with a um, you know with extension cords running to the things that you need to run the uh, the whole home commercial backup generators are nice uh but honestly if you've got an alternate heating method like you know fireplace or wood burning stove um the portable lp or, or natural gas generators i think have more utility and they're easier to maintain um, if you really wanted to do a backup battery bank uh, flooded lead acid i think is still your most economical option and I don't think folks living next to the Tesla headquarters can get a Powerwall, uh, so getting one at Tennessee might prove to be difficult. Uh, both the Powerwall and Powerwall 2 have zero availability as far as I'm aware. Uh, I do know someone that got a Powerwall put in and they love it. It does exactly what they, it's supposed to do and they've had no problems, but um, demand outstripped supply um, and so uh, there's not any options to get them that I am aware of. Now, if someone maybe have a bunch sitting in a in a warehouse somewhere, and, and you might be able to find those, um, you know, they, they are good systems. They uh, you can you can you know program them to uh, power up and and uh, run certain times or to um, uh, sorry, lost my train of thought. Or to charge themselves up at certain times that doesn't really help you in Tennessee we've got pretty cheap energy in Tennessee and um, it's not metered like you're not paying different uh, rates for different times Um, so the Powerwall you know while it is neat and it does do the things it's supposed to do uh, the cost benefit doesn't really apply in Tennessee Um, getting a battery from a wrecked Tesla uh, car might be easier uh, but again, from an initial cost standpoint, flooded lead acid are still the best. Um, but, you know, then you're introducing the issue of having to maintain batteries and, you know, replace them after a certain amount of time. So if I'm in your shoes, I go with the generator route, uh, whether it's the the whole home or, um, you know, a portable generator with a generator leak or a portable generator with the um, with extension cords. And, and honestly, I think, You know, running them off of natural gas if you're connected or propane pig. Um, If you're rural, you're probably going to have propane anyways. I think that's the way to go versus trying to store a bunch of gasoline. All right. Well, hey, there it is. Thanks for the question. Guys, keep them coming in, and I'll keep getting them answered. Have a great one.
1: You know what, guys? As I said in the intro, my segment today was going to be on kind of some of the more of the civil unrest that I see coming. And I'm not going to do it. It's a Friday. It's also a somber day. It's September 11th. We don't need to go into a weekend thinking that way. So I'm going to sort of do it a little bit different of a way. I'm just going to call on, once again, the best in us to think about this a little bit differently. There are going to be problems. And there's certainly going to be problems leading up to and after the election. There's going to be more violence. There's going to be more places set on fire. All of that is true. Most of the country are not going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with seeing it on your TV. You're going to have to deal with worrying about people that you care about that are maybe in the middle of some of these situations and unwilling or unable to extract themselves from them in advance. But I'm going to call upon you again just one more time. Think about getting out of these places now. If I'm wrong about the violence, if the violence subsides, it's not going to matter. These cities are going into terminal tailspins. and does that mean that they'll, that'll be forever that they'll never be an upcycle in any of them ever again? No, but it's it's a long duration situation. But boy, there's so much opportunity. That's why I'd rather just change the way I'm doing the end of the show today to the side of the opportunity. There are so many wonderful places in this country. There are so many places that are looking for something to bring them back or something to make them even maybe what they never were, to give people a little bit of hope. And that's all built around good relationships and good community. So I I don't think maybe there has been a time where it's more important to make that move for yourself. But I also don't think a time has ever existed where there's more opportunity to do it there is right now tons of little places all over America where towns have just kind of faded from what they once were and they're not totally gone they're just see if the population of a town has declined over the last let's say 20 years in general that means there's a surplus of property available there and that spells opportunity. And people in these places are looking for something to happen. There's so much, if you're an entrepreneur, there's so much opportunity to build a business. See, I, I want you to just again start thinking from the standpoint of problems equal opportunities. Whenever there's a problem, if you think about it, every way that people earn a living is a built upon solving a problem the most proactive happy you know good things are still solving a problem if you look at like let's like growing food farming or raising livestock you don't see that as a negative but it solves a problem I'm hungry I need something to eat everything that we do every job that somebody has exists because one one way or another, It's a solution to a problem. Even things that we don't think of that way, like let's say marketing. You have a job in marketing. Well, the problem is the company that you're doing the marketing from needs more business and can't reach enough customers. So if you have problems, you have opportunities. And that's all I'm going to say on that today. I want to be real brief today. Just take this weekend and step back away from all of this ugliness And if you're in a good place geographically, build where you're planted. Grow where you're planted. And if you're not, really think about how much impetus I've put on this over the last couple months about getting to that good place. Because I don't know that the opportunity will get any better anytime soon to make that decision, to make that move. There's a lot of good in the world. There's a lot of good people in this country. And, and stop thinking in us and them mentality. You know, recently there was the thing where a mob went to uh, an outdoor seated restaurant. I don't remember if it was D.C. or New York. But they were forcing people to do the black power fist. One woman said no. They threatened her. She said no. They threatened to get violent with her. She said no. She stood her ground. Guess what, Folks. This has not been widely reported. It should be. She was a Black Lives Matter protester. In general, she agreed with the people that were trying to make her do something. But she said no. She stood a ground against people that she probably agreed with more than she agrees with you and me. It's not us and them. That's the entire purpose of what's going on in our country right now, is to create an environment of us and them. I shared a video with you earlier this week where uh, it was like a counter-protest. And Antifa showed up. And Antifa got their ass beat. But at one point, about halfway through the video, there's a guy laying, Antifa guy, he's on the ground. They didn't beat him really bad or anything. They knocked his ass down, roughed him up a bit. But as people are walking past and tell him, just stay down. A really fat, disgusting-looking woman sprays him in the face with pepper spray while he's laying on his back and spoke to him in a way where you could tell she had such contempt that he was no longer human to her. This is not how we get out of the problems that we're in. This is how That's how we make them worse. Start looking to build. Start looking to build. As I finish up here, I realized that... Um, when I got into talking about September 11th, that I skipped over the quote of the day. And that probably works out perfectly because this quote actually fits really well with the way I've changed this end segment. It was by Robert Louis Stevenson. He said, Don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. People, when they are building something, look to the future with optimism. And when they're looking to the future with optimism, they work really hard to defend what they have. Everything that's being built up right now to try to create conflict and sow division in our country is built by taking away optimism and hope for the future. So matter no matter how many problems there are, Plant seeds today, plant trees today, both in real life, like actual seeds and actual trees, and in your own life from a standpoint of doing things for tomorrow. Don't stop doing that. Don't just prepare for the end of the world as we know it. Prepare to to build something really strong tomorrow. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of of the day today is by David Lee Murphy. And I don't know that there's even any other songs of his that I even know. I think he was really kind of a one-hit wonder with this song. It came out in the 90s. It was called Dust on the Bottle. And uh, like I said, I wanted to start doing some songs, like a group of songs. I'm going to go all through next week with this, if I can find enough, where they actually make me think of something from my own life. Well, here's what this song makes me think of. Just a few houses north of where my grandfather lived in Pennsylvania, there was a gentleman by the name of Buddy Shoemaker. He was the guy in this song. He was a guy. He made wine. Really good wine for a country winemaker in central Pennsylvania, man. He made wine out of everything. He made dandelion wine. You know, he made wine from my grandfather's grapes. He made wine from strawberry and rhubarb. He made a strawberry rhubarb. It was freaking amazing. He made all this wine, and the way he did it, He grew nothing, he picked nothing, he made blueberry wine from wild blueberries and all, blackberry wine. People would bring him stuff to make wine out of. He'd make wine, give them half of the wine from whatever they brought him, keep the other half. This guy had social capital like you wouldn't believe. This guy was an amazing man. And if you needed help, and you went to Buddy... If he didn't know how to help you, he knew somebody that did. He'd put you in touch with him. He was just an amazing guy. And I remember one time, he came down to our place. My grandfather was sitting out on the porch, listening to his crappy old music like he always did. I was sitting there with him. Buddy comes walking down the sidewalk. He has a bottle of wine in his hand it to the old man, said, here you go. The old man looks at it and says, well, what's this? He says, it's your wine. He said, it's seven years old. He said, that's when your wine is the best. And I know you. I give you a bottle of wine. It's going to get drunk. You'd never, ever let that bottle sit for seven years. So once I figured out when your wine peaked, I put a bottle away for you. Every year... I'll make you another batch. I'll put another bottle away for you. And I'll have one for you every year from now on. The old man's face. It was pretty amazing. You know, this was a hardened old man. He was a coal miner. He had coal in his arm. I used to think my grandfather was the toughest man in the world because he had pieces of coal embedded in his arm from a mine accident. Served through World War II lived through the Great Depression, and I saw that man's face soften because somebody did something for him that no one else could ever do for him. It was such a simple thing. It was so simple to just take that bottle and set it aside and say, hey, I've known Biff my whole life. Brings me great grapes every year. I'll just reserve one extra bottle for him. It was simple. It had been easier not to do it. But he solved problems. People had extra stuff. People liked wine. People didn't have the time or the inclination to make it. So he solved the problem. "Bring me your stuff and I'll do it for you." He got really good at it. never charged anybody any money. lived in a modest house, drove a car that was 25 years old, but in some ways, he was one of the wealthiest people in that area. Who never want for anything. When I hear this song, it takes me back to that time. And I remember that story. Take that with you through your weekend. It's been Jack Speerco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
0: Said, can you help me, Creole? I got a little girl waiting on me, and I, I want to treat it right. He said, I got what you need, son. As we sit down in the cellar, he reached through the cobweb as it turned on the light. He said, There might be a little dust on the bottle, but don't let it fool you I'm about watching. Sweeter with time You were sitting in the porch swing as I pulled up the driveway My whole heart was racing as you climbed inside You stood over with close at me drove down to the lake crow Watch the sun fade in that big red sky I reached down to the front seat and said I here's some special It's just been waiting for a night like this There might be a little dust on the bottom